Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Tonight, we are fortunate to have two great minds with us, uh, Dr. Bill Takeshida, who is the Chief of Optometric Services at the Center for the Partially Sighted and Consulting Director of Low Vision Training at Braille Institute, both in Los Angeles, and a renowned uh, retinal specialist, Dr. Cal Tawanzi from the Children's Retina Institute in Eagle Rock. And we're just so pleased to have you both tonight on the line with us. So without further ado, I'm just going to turn it over to Dr. Bill. Oh, thank you very much, Sue. And I want to thank all of you, so many of you from throughout the United States who have called in this evening. And I'd like to first wish all of you a, a happy and a safe and healthy New Year. And I think it's really, really appropriate that we are talking about retinopathy of prematurity this evening because retinopathy of prematurity continues to be one of the leading causes of vision impairment among children. I know that when I first was in optometry school and studying about retinopathy of prematurity, it was so, so popular. There were so many children who suffered from vision impairment due to this condition. And what's kind of disappointing in many ways is that so many years later, we still see that this is really a major, major problem among many children. The common factor for all of these children who suffer from vision impairment due to retinopathy of prematurity is that they are all born prematurely. Generally, they're born before 32 weeks gestation. So uh, the first question that I have for you, uh, Dr. Twanzi, is has there been any medical findings that might tell us why children are born prematurely? Does this happen to have anything to do with prenatal care or taking the appropriate prenatal vitamins by the mother? Or is this something that we really don't know why children are born prematurely? Oh, well, good evening, Bill. Thank you for that excellent question. Thank you, Sue, for the kind introduction. Um, well, children continue to be born prematurely on, on an escalating level, and um, it has to do with a lot of factors. There's not just one. Um, certainly, there are issues with um, um, mom's anatomy um, and, um, you know, anatomical issues that, that make certain women uh, more prone to, de to uh, delivering earlier. They can't carry a child to term. We know that, that certain moms who have one premature baby are certainly at higher risk for having uh, future premature children. Um, there's an increasing issue with uh, multi-parity, with, with women having, um, you know, twins, triplets, quadruplets. And there's, uh, there are trends for assisted fertilization programs that are often associated with, with these multiple births, uh, multiple gestational births, and often those are, are uh, born prematurely. Uh, and certainly there are genetic and nutritional and environmental factors, and we certainly know that women who um, seek the appropriate prenatal care from, um, you know, a qualified obstetrician and who take appropriate precautions, um, uh, including use of uh, vitamins, nutritional 
uh, method um, and having the, the baby monitored in utero. So if there is uh, an issue, um, sometimes an intervention can be made, like, for example, putting the mom on bed rest or certain medications that can extend the pregnancy. But despite all of our best efforts, um, you know, in that in that regard, there's certain women that are going to del deliver prematurely, and that's still a worldwide problem. Now, with uh, many of these children who do suffer from retinopathy of prematurity, we we do find that most of them were born prior to 32 weeks. And what is the significance of that time period of being born before 32 weeks that makes a child more prone to developing the retinopathy of prematurity? Well, it has to do, Bill, with the, uh, the anatomic development of the retina and also the metabolism of the retina. Um, if, uh, if the child reaches 32 weeks post-conceptional uh, age, um, the, the retinal vessels are fairly uh, well developed, um, close to the periphery. So when the child is born, there is a minimal area of non-developed retina uh, that could potentially develop retinopathy prematurity. And even though there may be some arrest in the development of the retinal vasculature, uh, it's generally not significant enough to cause um, a wide degree of, of non-perfused non retina that can secrete growth factors and ca that can cause abnormal blood vessels to develop. Um, so, um, you know, if they reach uh, 32 weeks post-conception, they're really, um, they don't even qualify for uh, screening beyond 32 weeks in most centers unless they've had exposure to extensive oxygen or if they have a stormy course uh, in the neonatal intensive care unit. Um, uh, below 32 weeks gestation, the metabolism of the retina is still immature. Um, the photoreceptors have not developed, and there is persistent fetal vasculature and a wide area of, of non-developed non-perfused retina, and that non-perfused retina, um, if, 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 the, if the, the normal vessels don't extend uh, and reach into the non-perfused retina and develop it, then that, that, that non-perfused retina can secrete growth factors that can cause significant retinopathy. So basically, when the child is born before 32 weeks, they really don't have the blood vessels of the retina developed, and this can cause the growth of the abnormal blood vessels that will then leak. And exactly. how is it that the leakage of this blood, how is it that that causes vision impairment? Well, um, when you have this non-developed peripheral retina that has no circulation, um, it responds to a lack of oxygen by forming abnormal new blood vessels. And unfortunately, these, these abnormal new blood vessels are pathologic. They don't function the same way 
that the, the, the normal vasculature uh, functions. They don't nourish the, the, uh, the, the tissue, the retina, and these blood vessels grow into the gel instead of within the retina. And they have properties of leakage and of contraction. So with the leakage, um, those blood vessels don't have the proper seal around them. And so as blood travels through them, proteins and lipids and fluid um, uh, basically seeps out of the blood vessels and gets into the retina and into the subretinal space. And that's very irritating uh, to the retina and causes damage to the retina and, and the underlying pigment layer. Um, and that, that fluid buildup causes the retina to detach. And simultaneously, these blood vessels, they kind of have a lifespan, unlike normal blood vessels that will perfuse uh, for the entire life of the individual. These blood vessels will become angry and juicy and leaky for a while, and then they will enter a, a second phase where they become contractile and fibrotic, and as they contract, they cause traction uh, on the underlying retina, and that, that tends the retina upward and elevates the retina. So you have two forces um, causing the retina to detach. The, the, the leakage, which is an, the exudative component of the retinal detachment, and the, and the, the scar tissue uh, that's forming from those abnormal blood vessels is a tractional component. And, and those two factors lead to, uh, you know, the potentially devastating retinal detachment associated with retinopathy prematurity. Now, we see in practice, when we see a lot of children with uh, retinopathy of prematurity, we see that the level of vision impairment of the children can really be quite different. And mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, that many of them may have a retinal detachment where these abnormal blood vessels will cause the retina to detach. Um, what is it that affects the different level of vision of these children? Is it really the intervention by the vitreal retinal surgeon who could identify the detachment early and uh, treat it? Well, certainly that's one important uh, variable uh, that can make a big difference. Uh, we know that treating, recognizing the disease early and that requires good screening, a criteria and good uh, compulsive bedside examination, recognizing that there's an abnormality in the way the blood vessels are developing early on allows uh, the retina specialist to uh, diagnose and intervene at an earlier level. And that's been shown in numerous studies to, to make a big difference in both the anatomical and visual outcome. So uh, because it, it tends to be kind of an unforgiving disease, once the disease progresses to retinal detachment, um, the prognosis, especially if the center of the retina is detached, uh, becomes much less. Um, if we can intervene early, we, we have very effective tools, uh, including uh, traditional ablative treatment with laser, and now uh, with the anti-vascular anesthesia growth factor agents like Avastin, we can intervene um, early and dramatically 
alter the course of the disease. And in general, we're fairly effective in, in keeping the eye out of retinal detachment. Now, so, and that's probably the biggest uh, variable in terms of vision, uh, but there are certainly other factors to consider. For example, uh, the more laser that's done, um, as, the, as, the, as the, the, the area of retina uh, that's lasered increases, that will affect the visual field of the child. So uh, if the laser is done uh, closer to the center in, zone, in zones one and two, that's more likely to constrict the visual field. And um, if there's extensive laser, it's more likely to, to lead to myopia, uh, which can also be visually disabling. And then uh, also very important to recognize that <clears throat> for vision uh, to work, it's not just the eye, but it's also the brain development that's very important. And many of these very premature babies will have neurologic issues such as hydrocephalus or intraventricular hemorrhage or uh, periventricular leukomalacia that can um, impact vision, um, you know, sometimes just in a minor way, sometimes more significantly. Fortunately, um, many of those issues can be overcome with, with visual development programs like what you, you and Sue have, have developed in the area here. And, uh, you know, let's go back a little bit to the, the uh, treatment that you, you stated that you very often will use, which is the laser treatment. Now, sure. is the tr uh, purpose of the laser treatment, is, is that to attempt to repair a detached retina? Or is that something that's there to obliterate those leaky blood vessels? Yeah, it's more the, the latter. Uh, once the um, retina detaches, actually, it, you don't want to put laser in areas of retinal detachment because it can actually accelerate the retinal detachment, create holes in the retina, which, is, which would be another uh, mechanism for the retinal detachment to extend. Um, but the idea of laser is to stop the pathogenesis of the retinopathy of prematurity. And uh, the way it works is that those abnormal blood vessels are being uh, driven, their growth is being driven by growth factors that are uh, secreted by areas of retina that are starved for oxygen. So those areas that have uh, insufficient blood flow, uh, that retina detects the absence of blood flow by secreting va uh, growth factors. The most studied one is called vascular endothelial growth factor. And that growth factor then acts um, at the leading edge of vascular development to, to cause abnormal or pathologic um, blood vessels to grow. And so we want to reduce the amount of starvation of that peripheral retina for oxygen by decreasing its oxygen demand. And that's what laser does. It basically um, um, treats areas of retina that have no circulation and uh, turn, by, by doing so, it turns off their metabolic needs. And so we essentially sacrifice 
parts of, of the retina that have no vision potential because they have no circulation, uh, and they're and then the periphery of the retina, uh, in order to save the critically important retina for vision, which is in the center. Okay. So the laser will actually kill some of the cells within that region of the peripheral retina that doesn't have much potential for vision, but that will reduce the demand for oxygen and reduce uh, the release of the growth factor to develop more blood vessels. Is that right? That's exactly right, Bill. And, and then you had mentioned that one of the latest treatments that you use are what are called anti-VEGF. And when, when do you recommend uh, anti-VEGF to treat the child with ROP as compared to the laser? Well, that is a very good question. It's actually a very hot topic right now. Um, and, in fact, it's um, a subject that all the pedi pediatric retina specialists in, in the world are um, ironing out, uh, and we actually have a meeting this coming weekend in Mexico City, uh, which it's going to, and it, we're going to be addressing that issue. But w there are certain concepts that we all agree on. Um, w when we inject the anti-VEGF agent inside the eye, what it does is it soaks up all those growth factors that are <clears throat> being created by the non-vascularized um, retina that has no blood flow. And <clears throat> so what it does is it causes all those angry blood vessels to um, settle down, and um, they stop leaking, and uh, they stop growing, and it kind of... Um, quiets the storm or, or you know, in, in a way, it's kind of like you have a fire and you, you kind of throw a bunch of water at it and it, it, settles, it settles the retina down very nicely. And then after um, that injection is given, uh, we have to watch the retina and see what happens, uh, watch the blood vessels, because even though... Um, the abnormal blood vessels have gone away, the retina still has a wide area of non-developed retina. And so we want to watch to see if, if the, the, the growth of the blood vessels now normalizes after the injection and normal vessels grow uh, further from, from the, the center of the retina to the periphery. That would be the ideal situation. Um, when we do the laser treatment, once we've done the laser, we've basically eliminated all of the non-perfused, non-circulating retina, and so the disease is kind of over with. It, it's, it's successful, and you don't have to worry about further complications. But with the injection, um, you haven't assured that the retina has grown um, the normal vessels to the periphery, and so it's, you have a higher incidence of, of the disease recurring, and you have to watch the child very carefully. And the anti-VEGF not only stops the abnormal blood vessels, but it also stops the normal circulation, the normal vessels, from, from growing out to the periphery. 
And so it creates a situation where um, the child has to be watched because there could be potential problems developing uh, later on. And so we tend to uh, use it in certain situations. Uh, the, the, the number one situation is where you have an extensive area uh, of retina that's not developed and only a, a small amount that's developed. So if you, if you were to laser such an eye, you would wipe out a great deal of the visual field. And so we are trying to give the retina a little bit more opportunity to grow blood vessels further out before lasering it. But many of those children who get the Avastin will require laser later, at probably 30 to 50% in that range, and this is being actively um, sorted out uh, right now. And we follow the children with angiograms to study the circulation to make sure that the blood vessels uh, develop in the, in the right way. Um, there are other situations uh, where we might want to use Avastin um, uh, for example, if the child is too unstable to tolerate laser, the laser procedure can take anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. Um, and many of these children are um, have critical cardiopulmonary issues, and um, the, they're not able to handle the trauma of such a procedure, uh, even though it's not very traumatic, but these are very fragile babies. The Avastin can be injected. Uh, within a, a couple of seconds. So it's uh, quite e easy for the baby to tolerate. Another situation is, for example, uh, if there's uh, extensive bleeding or cataract or medial opacity in the eye where we can't see well enough to get good laser takes in, we may prefer to give an Avastin uh, injection. Um, on the other hand, um, laser may be preferable if, uh, if, if there's a situation where the child may not be able to come back for follow-up uh, because, for example, the parents have transportation issues or other factors that we can't control. Um, so with the Avastin, the, parent, the family really needs to be committed to follow-up because the baby has a higher chance of developing problems later. Now, Dr. Tuanzi, with the Avastin injections for these children, uh, how frequently would you inject them with the Avastin as you're beginning to treat them? Is this something that they would just be receiving one injection, or is this something that they may receive uh, injections uh, once every three weeks, or is there a, a frequency of the Avastin injection? Yes, it's almost always only one-time injection uh, because we inject it at the height of the um, vascular activity in the eye. And retinopathy prematurity is a unique disease because uh, it, we call it a, a monophasic vasculopathy. In other words, the retinopathy accelerates to a certain point and usually... Uh, that height of that accelerated activity is somewhere between 35 and 37 weeks post-conception, regardless of how premature the baby was at birth. And then it tends to, to uh, undergo a 
resolution phase, what we call it a cicatricial phase, where the vascular activity starts to diminish, and that, and that vascular activity typically diminishes around the due date because of certain biochemical changes that occur uh, with um, an increase in um, TGF beta levels, um, transforming growth factor beta levels, and uh, a decrease in vascular endothelial growth factor levels around the due date. So we catch the disease at its peak activity, and we give one injection, and it dramatically alters the disease condition so that the blood vessels are no longer as angry and um, aggressive. And almost always after that, we can watch the child and monitor how the blood vessels are forming. And if abnormal blood vessels form later, they tend to be less angry uh, more of the dry type, what we call smoldering ROP or cicatricial ROP. And, that, and if in that situation, additional uh, Avastin doesn't help. If, if the child develops that condition, then the way to, to manage it is with laser. So, it's, so the simple answer to your question is that it's almost always only one injection. Now, there is one situation where that, that may be different, and that's if, if the child has already had laser treatment and you're using Avastin as a salvage therapy because the laser wasn't effective enough. In that situation, when you inject Avastin in the eye, it's more, much more likely to escape from the eye through the fenestrations that were created by the laser. And so the half-life of the drug inside the eye uh, is much less um, and so it escapes quickly, and you're more likely to require a second or third injection. But when you give it in an eye that's what we call virgin that has not had previous treatments or laser, uh, it stays in there uh, for a good month to two months and works uh, very well um, uh, to alter the disease in a way that, that no further vaccine treatments are required. Well, that's really exciting. You know, the Avastin is a very exciting treatment, and uh, the fact that it's only generally injected one time is great, and it also presents a potential of of some of the other areas of the retina uh, to to become healthier. Now, that's another right. another common thing that uh, we we see with children with retinopathy of prematurity is a situation where the gel. Uh, for our listeners out there, the eye is filled with a gel that is called the vitreous gel. And there are times that the vitreous gel becomes, quote, cloudy, whether it's because of blood or scar tissue. And and surgeons such as yourself, Dr. Twanzi, you do perform uh, the different types of vitrectomy surgeries where part of that gel is cut out and removed. And... Uh, I've, I've read articles recently about the lens-sparing vitrectomy, and can you tell the uh, audience about that procedure and when you would use that particular procedure to help the child's vision? Okay, so that's a good question, Bill. So we talked about the abnormal blood vessels and their ability to contract, and if they contract to a certain point, 
that leads to um, uh, detachment of the retina or elevation of the retina from its normal position. And so we, ha we as vitreous surgeons um, deal with the traction forces that are created by these abnormal blood vessels. And when we go into the eye, we want to first make sure that the vessels are not angry, that um, there, it's not likely to bleed, that it's more in the cicatricial or dry phase of, of, of uh, retinal detachment. And we sometimes we use, uh, again, Avastin or laser or steroids or other drugs to try to modulate the disease before we enter it. But once we do enter, uh, in order to prevent, to stop retinal detachment from progressing and to reverse retinal detachment, what we can do is use tiny instruments, and now there are smaller and smaller gauge instruments available. Um, within the last decade, it's, there's been a revolution in instrument size, which is a big advantage in these tiny preemie eyes because they're only about one-sixth the size of an adult eye. And we can go in there and address inside the gel uh, the, these, these, these tractional membranes. Uh, we can uh, divide them and segment them and uh, release the traction and allow the retina to settle back to its normal position. And uh, that is a major intervention that can dramatically alter the course of the eye. <clears throat> and uh, the idea behind lens sparing is that, um, you know, in the past, because the, the, the neonatal eye is so small and the lens is relatively big and it's, it's uh, when the retina detaches in ROP, it, the retinal detachment sits just behind the, the crystal lens, and the, the traditional name for ROP is retrolental fibroplasia, which means traction membrane sitting right behind the lens, and that's the anatomy that we're dealt with. And so, in the past, um, when we've we've repaired the retinal attachments, we've simultaneously have re have needed to remove the crystalline lens in order to access the retina and, and be able to reach the anatomy in a safe way. Unfortunately, when, that, uh, when that's done, two things happen. Number one, the child is left without a lens, and at this very early age in life, um, ha not having a lens means that the, the, the world is out of focus, and, and the visual system is developing. Um, and so that causes amblyopia or laziness of the eye because uh, even though the retina may be attached, if the, um, if, the, if the image of the world is not properly focused on the retina, the child is going to be deprived of visual images and constantly develop lazy eye or amblyopia. The other thing that early removal of the lens does is it causes significant trauma to the front part of the eye, and often the lens fibers are not completely removed, it's hard to adequately remove the entire lens in a child with ROP, and that leads to a higher incidence of late scar tissue forming in the front of the eye, like membranes that close the pupil or uh, cause peripheral traction. And so the incidence of redetachment and reproliferation goes higher if you uh, remove the lens at the outset. So for those two reasons, 
lens sparing vitrectomy um, is, is an advantage, and it was actually first described by uh, Tracy and McGuire in 1994, so it's actually been around for a while. But it's increasingly popular now that we have these smaller gauge instruments uh, where we can sneak into spaces uh, that we couldn't do when the instruments were larger so we can more effectively do lens sparing techniques. You know, and uh, these procedures that you're just talking about tonight, that is really one of the major differences that I have observed at, at our center when we see children with retinopathy of prematurity is that their, their functional vision is significantly better. And as a matter of fact, today I had a patient, uh, one of yours, who received treatment who was born after 25 weeks gestation, and we were just amazed at, at how well this, this child was able to see, and he, he still had the lenses of his eyes, and, you know, it, it, it's just really, really amazing. So even though ROP is something that still is present, the main difference is that the uh, functional level of vision that these children have is significantly greater and then number two is that with the advances in low vision technology in terms of glasses and computer equipment, other types of uh, visual aids, they have a chance to improve their vision that way. And, and we also see that children at this very young age, they are receiving early intervention visual stimulation to stimulate the visual centers of the brain from uh, organizations such as the Braille Institute and the Junior Blind of America. So I think that children with ROP really have a, a very, very good prognosis when they do receive the, the appropriate care. Yeah, I would uh, wholeheartedly agree with you. I mean, it's really exciting um, nowadays to see children who had very significant ROP who had, you know, uh, appropriate intervention early on uh, with laser, and then if they develop retinal detachment, that the, the retinal surgery can be done in a minimally traumatic way so it doesn't um, cause a lot of uh, uh, inflammation and setback to the child's visual development, and then couple that with a, an aggressive program to visually rehabilitate the child including, you know, early vision stimulation and use of, use of the appropriate uh, refractive aids and, if necessary, low vision aids. Um, you know, that, the whole combination uh, now makes a world of difference for a child who was born, you know, under 25 weeks gestation who a decade ago didn't have much of a chance now has, a, you know, an excellent chance of having a very good outcome. Yes, it's 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 really really just so encouraging. And um, one of the things that I learned from you, Dr. Twante, I'd like for our audience to really understand this and and remember this to share with families, is that I recall that you had informed us that a child who's born prematurely, it's very important that they have an examination in the hospital by a vitreal retinal surgeon such as yourself. But simply because that that child does not have ROP at that date, that does not mean that the child is clear. 
it's important that that child receives additional examinations because you had mentioned how there's a particular time period that the child has the greatest likelihood to develop the ROP. Can you describe that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a critical window of time, and it's important to recognize the children that are at risk and to be compulsive in doing the bedside examinations and to continue to do them until the retinal blood vessels have grown out to the point that they've reached the periphery. When they've reached the periphery, the child is no longer at risk for ROP retinal detachment, but that usually doesn't happen until around the due date or in some very premature babies. It can be well after the due date, sometimes after 50, 60, 70 weeks post-conception. So it's important for the retina specialist to actually look at the retinal vascular development and see the leading edge and monitor how far it is from the edge of the retina. And it's, it's critical that the children who haven't fully developed continue to be examined every week or two uh, because they can get into trouble at any time. And so, you know, the um, bedside examinations are often um, not a very welcome thing by parents and by nurses because, uh, you know, it looks so, um, you know, uh, I don't know the right word, it looks kind of scary when you see someone wearing a, a helmet with a light on it, you know, that's our indirect ophthalmoscope and using tools to move the eye around, and invariably the child is fussy, but it doesn't really cause, it doesn't cause any significant damage to the eye or um, pain to the child. It's a little bit uncomfortable for the child, but um, the parents need to, to know that, um, you know, just doing it once uh, only gives us one moment in time in terms of the development of the retinal vasculature. And uh, if if the vessels are all the way grown to the periphery, then great, you can stop there and not worry so much about ROP detachment. There are other issues that need to be worried about that are not as critical. But when the vessels are short, then all it tells us is that there's still a risk. And if we don't continue to follow the child, uh, you know, even a child may, be, may, may actually have very good vision at that stage. And uh, the parents will say, well, there's nothing wrong with my baby. He looks at me and is doing great and is visually interactive. Well, that's great, but you, you don't need to have full retinal vascular development to have vision. You can just have the central part of the retina develop, and you'll have good vision. But if, if the periphery is not developed, um, then the traction and the abnormal blood vessels can grow later, and a child who had good vision can now lose that, that vision. And once it's lost, it's, um, you know, if the center of the retina becomes detached or dragged, then you really never will regain the, the, the great vision that the child had before this problem arose. So we can detect it early, and we can we can treat it before the detachment occurs, and this results in, in a much more favorable uh, long-term outcome. So it, it, it requires a little bit of compulsiveness 
uh, in the first weeks of life. Yeah, and I think that that is just so important that everybody remembers that so we could tell parents that just because uh, the eyes looked okay at that one visit, we, we still need to continue to examine the retina until those blood vessels have developed out to the periphery. Now, yeah. would, you, would you please describe for the audience, many times uh, we have teachers for the visually impaired and they will receive a report or it might even be a copy of the child's eye chart. And sometimes it will say things such as stage one or stage five or, um, you know, can you describe what those particular terms mean when it says grade one, grade five, and uh, describe how the location is is determined and described by uh, eye doctors? Yes, absolutely. There's a... Uh, international classification of retinopathy prematurity that was developed uh, with the Cryorop study that we still use today. And this describes the staging system that we know uh, so that doctors can communicate with one another and with their patients. And um, the staging is from one, uh, well, it's actually from zero to five. Um, where five is being the worst, five is a, t a total retinal detachment. Uh, so stage zero ROP means that there's really no retinopathy prematurity, but the blood vessels are growing in the, in the normal way that they should be growing. They just haven't reached the periphery all the way. And so when we look in, the retina sort of imperceptibly blends from the vascularized retina to the avascular retina. It kind of gradually turns gray, uh, and the, the blood vessels drop, are, not, are no longer seen in the periphery. If, there's, if, that, if that transition becomes more abrupt, such that there's a clear demarcation between the vascular and avascular retina, and there's a little line between the two, uh, we call that stage one retinopathy prematurity, and that's where a line is present. And that line is at the edge of where the retinal blood vessels are forming. We call that the leading edge of vascular development. And what happens with these abnormal blood vessels is that instead of growing radially um, from the optic nerve out to the periphery, they grow from uh, one leading vessel uh, to another leading vessel circumferentially, and they form a vascular plexus that steals blood away um, from uh, the retinal circulation, and uh, we call this a shunt. And so, as as the as the that shunt increases in thickness, it, it looks more like a ridge instead of a line. It has it's like a, a, an elevated uh, uh, fibrovascular ridge that that's seen circumferentially. That's stage two retinopathy or prematurity, and that's when the shunt is developing. And then as the disease progresses, then we see these frank abnormal blood vessels that extend from the ridge into the vitreous gel, and we see these as fronds of abnormal pink vascular tissue growing in an abnormal location, and that's stage 3 retinopathy or prematurity. And it, when you're in zones 1, 2, and 3, um, if you can reverse, reverse the disease at that point, 
you've really lost nothing in terms of, of function because uh, so far there's no retinal detachment. And so we generally want to intervene when we're at stages two and three, uh, when, uh, often when we see plus disease, and plus disease refers to the degree of dilation and tortuosity of the retinal blood vessels. Uh, as that shunt occurs at the leading edge, as it steals more blood, uh, it, it sort of revs up the circulation. Then what happens is the, the blood vessels start to dilate and become tortuous and leak. And so uh, plus is, is another factor that we look at when we're deciding whether to treat or not. Beyond stage three, then we have retinal detachment. So stage four is a partial retinal detachment, and we divide that into stage 4A and 4B, and that's because the macula is kind of critical. If, 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 if the macula detaches, then the prognosis for central vision deteriorates considerably. So with 4A retinal detachment, you do not involve the macula, and you still have potential for excellent massive function, excellent reading vision. But if you have stage 4B, that implies that it's a partial retinal attachment that does not extend, that, I'm sorry, that does extend into the macula. So stage 4B involves macular deta uh, detachment, and stage 5 is the entire retinal detachment being, um, uh, the entire retina being detached. And that can be subdivided into the configuration of the stage 5 um, as, the, the retinal detachment often looks like a, uh, a volcano or a funnel, and the funnel can be open uh, both in the, in the back part of the eye and the front part of the eye, and that's the easiest to repair, or it can be closed. It can be closed in anteriorly or closed posteriorly, or closed in both locations. The more, the more closed it is, the more difficult it is to repair. So that's the staging uh, system that we use, stages one through five. We also talk about the zones, zone one being the central part of the retina, zone two sort of the intermediate part, and zone three the peripheral. And the further out the retinal blood vessels have, have gone, um, the higher the number of the zone and the better the prognosis. So a retinal detachment that occurs in zone three or, or retinopathy or prematurity that occurs in zone three has a much more favorable prognosis than if you have zone one close to the macula um, developing that old attachment. Yeah, so the, the important thing for teachers, especially as they're trying to determine the prognosis of the child being able to uh, read print, read books, uh, see their writing, if it is a stage 4, especially a 4B or a stage 5, there's a very good likelihood that the child may not have the detailed vision or they may not have that visual acuity to read print. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, that's where um, the, um, the biggest uh, sort of line in the sand uh, between good reading and driving vision uh, and poor reading and driving vision occurs is when you transition from stage 4A where the macula is not detached into 4B. Once the macula is detached, detaches, um, it's much harder uh, to develop vision. It takes a lot more work. Many of these children, uh, you know, if the detachment in 4B was only brief um, and intervention occurs early, they can still have good functional vision, but to have really sharp 
Central Vision, 2020 Vision, it's unlikely to occur if, if the detachment uh, extended to stage 4B. Great. You know, and the last question before we open it up to uh, questions is I often receive calls from parents where they have read articles, and this may have been maybe even as long as 10 years ago, but there was an article that came out that stated that children who sleep in a room with a light on were at a much greater risk of developing retinopathy of prematurity. And you want to just comment on that so that uh, our teachers and listeners can understand the, the, the truth about that? Yeah, this was uh, actually formally studied in um, uh, a study called the Light Rock Study. And um, <clears throat> basically, there, there was some thought that, that uh, you know, when the, if, if you can decrease the metabolic needs of the retina, you might be able to uh, prevent retinopathy of prematurity. And actually, the retina is more metabolically active um, when the lights are off than on. When, 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 the, when investigators actually did the study, they, they were thinking that if you kept um, the child in, in, light, in a light situation, that you may have a lower chance of developing ROP. Um, but the truth of the matter is that uh, nothing, uh, th th there's been no scientific data to suggest that re rearing a child in an in a, uh, environment of darkness or of a bright light makes any difference at all in terms of the development of retinopathy prematurity. This has been studied, and so we no longer light adapt or dark adapt uh, children in, t in terms of trying to minimize this disease. Um, there are other um, variables that are actually more significant. Um, uh, a lot has to do with um, the metabolism um, of the child and their oxygen demands and keeping the oxygen levels uh, in an appropriate range, typically in a low range, uh, but, but keeping it from dipping too low and rising too high, that can help um, induce normal retinal vascular growth and correcting problems like acidosis and anemia uh, in the hospital and being vigilant about those things um, has is, is been shown to, to be very helpful. Um, also, if the child develops an intraventricular hemorrhage if that, if, and the pressure intracranial pressure goes up, if we can reverse that or minimize intraventricular hemorrhage, that certainly can uh, help retinal vascular development. And there, there are studies um, uh, out of Mike Shapiro's group in Chicago um, that, that showing, um, you know, the correlation between intracranial disease and retinopathy of prematurity and uh, the pr presence of intraventricular hemorrhage. And finally, something that the parents can do is um, nutrition, and, and really the best thing is breast milk for these children. And there's some exciting studies showing that children getting adequate nutrition with breast milk are at lower, have lower incidence of, of uh, 
uh, retinopathy prematurity. So those wow, are things to concentrate. That's on. really, really great, great information. And it shows that there has been a lot of uh, advances in the treatment for ROP. Um, we have a little bit of time to take some questions. If any of you have questions, if you would unmute your phone by pressing star six and go ahead and ask your question to uh, Dr. Twanzi. So unmute your phone by pressing star six and, and go ahead and ask him any questions if you have any questions about these treatments or anything else regarding ROP. Okay, Sue, do you or any of your staff, or does anybody out there have any questions for Dr. Twanzi? I think he's covered most things, you know, very, very clearly. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I've been taking rampant notes, and um, every time I, I hear both of you, I learn something new. So <laughs> I just I just want to say thank you so much for joining us tonight and sharing all this great information and this really hopeful information about um, what is on the horizon and the things that are possible for kids, you know, infants and, and who, are, who are diagnosed with ROP and for the families. I have a question. Yes, go ahead, please. Thank you. Um, I'm um, an adult with, well, when I was born, it was retinal fibroplasia, mm -hmm. and now it's ROP, and I have known many adults who had vision as children and have lost what vision they had, and I'm wondering today with the treatments that are given to our children, uh, what is going to be some of their prognosis in the future, or do we know yet? Thank you for that very excellent question. Um, you know, you're, you're absolutely right in that um, retinopathy prematurity is a lifelong disorder, and um, there's uh, potentially devastating consequences early in life um, if retinal detachment occurs, uh, such as, um, you know, that, that occurs typically between 40 and 50 weeks post-conceptual age. That is something that we've all been uh, taught to address and to be vigilant about. But there are other problems that develop uh, later on, and that, that avascular retina in the periphery um, is a source of other potential complications. For example, adults who are born prematurely, even though they've never required uh, they, they've never met criteria for laser treatment for ROP. If, they, if they've developed some ROP or they have areas of, of retina that are not, that, that don't have full circulation, they're at risk for developing retinal holes that can lead to retinal detachment. They're at risk for developing neovascularization of the retina that can lead to hemorrhage. It can lead to a form of glaucoma called neovascular glaucoma. It can lead to cataract, um, and it can lead to uh, tractional retinal detachments as well. Um, and so, um, you know, I've seen many children, probably as many children as, as I operate on in the perinatal period, an equal number 
I operate on uh, during uh, late childhood, teenage years, and even in adulthood. And they can develop very complex forms of retinal detachment with scar tissue formation, and these can lead to uh, blindness. And, and when they happen in, in a toddler, they can often be undiagnosed um, because the child generally won't complain if they lose vision from one eye. Um, and for, for this reason, um, you know, our policy and the policy throughout the world is, is to um, follow these children closely. Um, even when the retinal vessels uh, appear to have, have uh, you know, the abnormal vessels regressed and the normal vessels reach the periphery, we still like to check these children in the office every six months, really for life. Um, and the, the question you raise about the prognosis now, we know that laser treatment for ROP is very protective and um, wasn't perhaps available, you know, before the 1980s um, and now is dramatically altering outcomes. And, and we, have, we have data now 20 and 30-year-old um, young adults who had laser and they generally have an excellent prognosis. There can be late complications after laser. But the situation with Avastin is even increasingly uh, causing an alert because um, the, Avastin, the children who have Avastin, uh, unless you know that the blood vessels have grown out all the way to the periphery and document that with a forcing angiogram, um, they can develop problems anytime. And we've only been doing Avastin for about um, seven or eight years, and we're seeing detachments occur that far out. Uh, and so um, it raises the question, well, with these new treatments, um, you know, what's going to happen if, if the child drops out of the medical system and then potentially gets into trouble late? So really vigilance is an important um, concept when we're dealing with, 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 with managing these these uh, children as they grow older. What about somebody who went to stage two as an infant and is now an adult about age um, 30 and um, has continued to have perfect vision? They, it reversed itself. How often should they be checked? Well, <clears throat> it, it really depends. If they, they reach stage two and then it regressed. Uh -huh. um, they, um, if it looks by our examination that the blood vessels have reached the periphery, and in addition, we don't see an, an area of retinal thinning. Often, kids who, who develop stage two or even stage one can develop um, types of vitreoretinal degenerations. Uh, we call them white without pressure or lattice degeneration, basically areas of abnormal vitreoretinal interface where the vitreous attachment is, is firm and the, and the retina is thin, and that's a predisposition to, to forming retinal breaks and, and holes. If, if they don't have any of that and the, the blood vessels lo look pretty healthy and they reach the periphery, we tend to examine them yearly. If they have 
these other vitreoretinal de degenerations, it's probably every four to six months. And sometimes, um, you know, if we're particularly concerned, we may want to take a child like that to the um, uh, operating theater and do an examination under anesthesia and possibly add some laser treatment um, to reinforce the, those areas of retina so that they are, are at lower risk of developmental break. Well, thank you, Dr. Twanzi. Uh, this has just been really, really informative, and I think it really gives all of us an understanding of all of the different treatments that are available for ROP. Uh, so if anybody ever wants to get in touch with you, you want to give a contact information uh, if anybody has questions that they want to ask privately or if they have patients they would like for you to see? Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it's always a pleasure for me to interact with with uh, you, Bill, and, and all the patients. Um, and and I'm, we're certainly happy to, to field questions or to be contacted at any time. So um, you may reach me um, by email by um, sending it to ktawanzi at childrensretina.com. That's K-T-A-W-A-N-S-Y at children's, plural, uh, without an apostrophe, retina, R-E-T-I-N-A, dot com. Or you can also, also text message me on my cell phone, which is 323-313-5757. So either of those will work. Great, great. Well, thank you very, very much. It's very generous of you to give a cell phone number for text messages. You're going to have a lot of text messages. <laughs> yeah, right, Mike. But no I problem. Like to thank, I'm, I'm uh, often... Uh, I'm often checking my text messages, so it's no problem at all. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and I'd also like to thank you, Sue and Brell Institute, for sponsoring this, and also uh, Mr. Dick Burden from Airs yes. LA and uh, for recording this. Now, this lecture is going to be available through podcast at both the Airs LA website, which is www.airsla, that's A-I-R-S-L-A.org, and also at the Braille Institute website at www.brailleinstitute.org. So, Sue, what do we have for next month? Uh, do you have the topic for next month? Yes, we do. Um, Dr. Bill, you'll be talking. You'll be offering an overview of cortical visual impairment, and that would be a great discussion as well. We're looking forward to that. Okay, great. Oh, that sounds awesome. Well, I, I want to thank you, <laughs> uh, Sue and Bill. For uh, for inviting me to to speak with you tonight, it's it's always a pleasure, and uh, look forward to more of these sessions. And uh, I'll try to tune in when you're when you're on the, the spot. So <laughs> next, next <time>. <laughs> okay, <laughs> exactly. thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. Dr. Twyze. We really appreciate your your time tonight. Okay. Yes, have and a have a night. great thank have you. a great trip to Mexico City. So thank you, everybody, <laughs> and we hope to see you next month. Good night, everybody. Great.